uh, white supremacists and other right-wing extremists were actually responsible for 67% of the domestic terror attacks in the U.S. Welcome to episode 39 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. Welcome back, everyone. Hey! We're back again! <laughs> I feel like we can't talk about how we are anymore just because every time we do it, Ed, like the whole world is changing so drastically. Hey, but good news, another update on the corona vaccine. Uh, in Canada, we have over a million doses administered, so wow. we're on our way. Hey, that's pretty great! Yeah, so even with the slowdown in Canada, we're still, uh, we're still doing well. We're still on our way. Yeah, and I actually all. know a few people who have completed their shots already. Obviously, wow. they work in the medical field. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, none of them are dead. <laughs> none of them have autism. So it's all all great. That's really good because all I ever read when I uh, flip through the news sources is how Canada is somehow falling behind or not utilizing vaccines the way they should be. Yeah, so in reality, Canada is falling behind, like <laughs> relatively speaking, compared to every other country, but we're still moving in the right direction. I'm still trying to be positive. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm still waiting for my vaccine, and I truly hope that they will do teachers before other folks, but I don't know. I might be waiting a long time. What about us essential workers in the the necessary services that keep our society afloat? You teachers, you... You're tertiary. You take a back seat. <laughs> I have to be in the classroom for four hours at a time. <laughs> I know, with kids. I know. Oh my god! I need I need a shot so that I don't catch anything that those little germ monsters have. <laughs> yeah, listen. I mean, kids are walking petri dishes, so <laughs> they I, are. I, I think I think uh, teachers, uh, essential workers, need to definitely get their shots first. And unfortunately, I'm probably at the back of the line, but <laughs> I I want to be at the front of the line when it's open to me. Just don't cut the line like that uh, couple who mm. flew out to wherever they went. Was it the guy in his? They were in the Northwest Territories, I think. They went to somewhere that was, yeah, I think uh, an indigenous population that was supposed mm-hmm. to be getting the vaccine, and they're like, "Hey, yeah, we're here." <laughs> yeah, we live here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Speaking of white privilege. <laughs> Segue, Rory. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Hey, unintentional but perfect. (laughs) Yes. So today, today we're talking about white supremacy. So um, maybe Rory, you want to start us off with kind of a definition of white supremacy? Yeah. Just on the the very general level, we can say white supremacy is a belief that the white race is genetically superior to others. Usually woven into that is a lot of conspiracy theories that see whites as constantly in battle with other other groups like uh, Jewish groups, non-whites, and homosexuals. In the U.S., it's especially targeted against blacks. I think in Canada, it's predominantly targeted against Muslim communities at this point. But yeah, generally... White race genetically superior to others equals white supremacy. I think there's also kind of a element of culture as well. Like um, there's a view of like the white culture being superior compared to other cultures and also uh, some elements of like segregation as well in terms of uh, white people should live in white neighborhoods and 
white neighborhoods are safer than other neighborhoods, for example. Yeah. So it, it kind of infiltrates other aspects of society as well. Yeah, and if you were to take that back to the Jim Crow era, you've got you know kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy coming from the segregation because if you have white schools and black schools, but then you, you know, routinely defund and underfund the black schools, then yeah, they become worse institutions. And so it's like creating your own myth. So how, how do we fi- how do we fix this? Well. I, I'm sure that I don't have a, a definitive solution, but I can uh, tell you a little bit about what tends to stoke the fires and get these these far-right white nationalist groups uh, motivated and mobilized and out there causing problems in society. From what I've read, typically mobilization comes from perceived threats to their economic, social, and political power structures. So... Other things like having supportive political allies like a, a Donald Trump or a Stephen Harper is definitely going to help these groups feel emboldened enough to, to stick their heads out and cause trouble. Do we think that there has been an uptick in white supremacy since Donald Trump? Oh, absolutely. Unquestionably, there has been. So I, I do have some stats as well. Uh, so the Southern Poverty Law Center in the U.S., uh, have been tracking active hate groups in the U.S. So I think what's interesting about the statistics is there has been a rise in the number of hate groups, uh, specifically uh, white nationalist groups, uh, since Donald Trump uh, was uh, since Donald Trump uh, became the president. However, in uh, 2020, uh, there was actually a drop, an 11 percent drop in. Uh, white nationalist groups. And I think what was interesting about it is when they kind of viewed why uh, there was this drop, there was a lot of factors that kind of drove some of these groups to kind of uh, die off. Um, Maybe not, you know, not for reasons because people became enlightened, (laughs) but essentially is because uh, some of these white nationalist groups weren't able to get a footing in terms of uh, their presence in social media, where you have you know Twitter and Facebook starting to ban these groups. And white nationalists have also uh, been having trouble raising money as well because the services that they require to raise that money, uh, for example, uh, like those uh, financial uh, transaction uh, websites, essentially ban them as well. So a lot of these groups only rely on like cryptocurrencies. So there was this decrease because external systems are now putting some checks and balances to kind of actually stop some of these groups. Why was this never done before? That's what I want to know. Right. Good question. Good question. (laughs) Yeah. Is there, um, is there any indication that, uh, you know, COVID restrictions, like the inability of people to gather in large groups has had any kind of Yeah, uh, COVID-19 was partially a factor as well. So uh, as they evaluated um, the reason for why there was this drop in 2020, uh, COVID was one of the reasons. Uh, but I, a lot of it was due to the fact that uh, social media platforms have been essentially banning them. <laughs> Uh, from spreading and also uh, preventing these payment platforms or these, sorry, these payment platforms preventing them from getting any funding. 
That's good. It's a move in the right direction. Yeah, did you guys hear that recently Canada put uh, the Proud Boys on the terrorist threat list? I did read something to that effect about um, far-right groups who are militarized being considered terrorist threats now. Yeah, the Strange Proud Boys... that Canada has to do it, but the U.S. has not still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't find that strange. You do? <laughs> I find it unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in reality, you know, the Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. have uh, essentially indicated that white supremacists are the greatest threat to uh, their domestic security. So unfortunately, uh, when you look back in history, especially in 2020, uh, white supremacists and other right-wing extremists were actually responsible for 67% of the domestic terror attacks in the U.S. So it's not the Mexicans that are, you know, causing the problem. Not it's all the immigrant not, groups that they assume exactly. and demonize themselves. And their it's own it's not the far left, you know, that's terrorizing the U.S. The people that are terrorizing the U.S. is white supremacists. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really unfortunate that the uh, U.S. hasn't put them like on sort of a terrorist status, just because when Canada did that, it totally defunded them. So like it froze mm-hmm. all their assets. Um, all these people stopped uh, providing services to them and things like that. So it makes them harder to actually operate. And so if yeah. the U.S. really took this threat seriously. Um, being able to really cripple them like that would have a huge impact. For sure. In fact, you kind of reminded me of a quote that I just uh, scrolled down to. It's from Evan Balgard, executive director of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. And he said that preventing hate groups from disseminating information online is the most critical factor. So, yeah, as soon as they're on these terrorist watch lists and they're not able to operate in the open... It definitely is going to have an impact, as Kenny's statistics show. And we, we've talked about this in the past, about social media platforms like Facebook, for example. Um, I think it sounds like there's change that's about to happen in terms of the winds are shifting for Facebook, where people are questioning Facebook's incentives in the market. Essentially, I mean, Facebook is completely incentivized right now to continue to promote these hate groups because that's how they make their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, how they make their money is essentially redirecting people that are interested in white supremacy into a echo chamber that uh, continues to reverberate these white supremacist ideals. Yeah. Reinforce it. And have you, um, either of you noted, uh, as I did, that there's been some consolidation of the... Uh, the white supremacist groups with other groups that are uh, in favor of free speech events or, or men's rights events, you know, things like that, that are kind of folding together at all. I think you mentioned the Proud Boys, Sherry, any kind of uh, consolidation like that, that you two noted? The consolidation uh, I've seen just based on, I think uh, what I talked about last time for the anti-vax movement, you know, there is this consolidation of, anti-vaxxers and right-wing groups and they tend to kind of fall in line with the white supremacist groups as well just because they tend to be anti-establishment but also 
uh, tend to kind of pr promote ideologies that don't uh, that aren't grounded in reality. And for whatever reason, I, I don't know why that's the case. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there might have been studies to kind of indicate why there is this appeal for people to align themselves with things that aren't grounded in reality, but um, they seem to have found uh, kind of uh, partners uh, with some of these other groups. Yeah. I was thinking that uh, so often hate speech is, is something that they try to claim as, you know, free speech, that they should be able to espouse their hateful ideas freely. And I think... Uh, you know, I, it wasn't by accident that I mentioned the Harper government since they were the ones who were responsible for repealing Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, which pertained to hate speech. But, you know, I mean, they are allowed to promote hate speech, but they're not free from consequences. Mm -hmm. So the government's not going to stop them from uh, speaking their minds about hate speech, but... Uh, that doesn't mean they're free from consequences. And some of those consequences are you may not be able to participate in a platform, for example, because that platform is owned by a corporation and that corporation has terms of services that every user has to abide by. And if you don't, then you are more than welcome to find another platform to use, such as... Parlor, for example, which is the the right wing kind of social media platform. I had never even heard of that. Yeah, it's where all of those alt writers went when uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook stopped allowing them to spew their hate. Oh, yeah. I so I I am on Parlor. I actually signed up for Parlor a, a few years ago, maybe when they first uh, joined up. Um, so when all this humbug was happening at the Capitol, I actually logged on to Parlor again just to have a look. And yeah, it's just literally just filled with right-wing propaganda. There's no dissenting view <laughs> in any of the conversation. It is literally just wacky, wacky ideas. Conspiracy um, theories? Consp <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I had to kind of bleach my eyes after <laughs> watching it. So you still have an account on Parler? Yep, I still have an account, but I mean Parler's shut down now, which is oh, fantastic is because I, again, you know, the saying these hateful things will lead to consequences and, you know, one of the big um cloud providers for Parler was Amazon Web Services, and Amazon decided, well, we don't really want this type of content to be a to be associated with them. And as a corporation, they have every right to s tell Parler, find another s provider for your service. Mm. So that's what Amazon did. So Parler still exists. Parler can still exist if they want to. They just need to find another web service provider that's not Amazon. Are there places then on the internet that these people have gone to now that Parler is gone? It, like just deep dark, I guess, parts of the web my, my guess would be they're probably in the dark web where the you know the, there are probably still conversations happening between these groups uh but they are now buried i think it does bring into question whether we want these conversations on the surface so everyone can see 
see what type of conversations are happening uh, because now we've essentially driven the conversations underground where we can't really see what they're talking about. Uh, I would suspect law enforcement uh, are continue, continually in trying to infiltrate those conversations, but uh, I think it's a you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons. Is it better to continue to let these conversations be out in the open or keep them buried? I don't know what what your thoughts are on that. I definitely prefer to see them buried and not see the light of day. I think it's much more frightening to find them having conversations and rallies out in the open and you know, gaining the legitimacy of not being immediately shut down and believing that their views are somehow equally valid to progressive viewpoints that are inclusive to all persons in the nation. I think you make a good point about validation. I find even, even with like not white supremacy, like we're talking about maybe uh, just super alt-right people um, in the media, you know, talking about like Breitbart and stuff like that. Like there is an argument that's out there that we should hear their voices uh, so that we know how to counteract them or um, things like that. And I just don't think we should be giving validation to these voices. I just don't think... Um, allowing them to have a platform to speak from is a good idea. You know, this is how that information um, spreads or that misinformation, I should say, spreads um, and reaches more people. And I just don't think it's a worthy uh, voice to be spreading. Yeah. Once it's out in the open, it gives people an opportunity to discover that type of conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think the benefit with having social media platforms take an active role in actually uh, shutting down these conversations is probably to eliminate the discoverability of uh, white supremacist ideals. As a corporation, you have to make a decision on your bottom line or what's right for society. And uh, at least certain social media platforms are kind of moving in the right direction, but the, I think it's still going to be a bit of a struggle to kind of do that debate between what is allowed on a platform, what isn't. Uh, but I think generally we can agree white supremacist ideals or this white nationalism is probably not good to kind of continue to spread and allow to become discoverable to other people. And you definitely... Um... You raise to focus the the paradox of it, which is in my mind as well, because in general, I am very much against censorship of content, but censorship of material that has no constructive value whatsoever, I have to agree with. Mm-hmm. It's this weird, um, I don't know, uh, conflict that a lot of people have with free speech. Like, should everyone have the same voice or the same... Uh, equal voice. And I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that, you know, these white supremacists should get the same place at the bargaining table that, you know, a liberal might have, or even conservative, like we're talking about, like, you know, all right, conservatives. 
I like I think that conservatives have a place at the table and I think that you know uh liberals do but then I don't think that everyone should have an equal voice there. I don't think that we should be talking to these white supremacists as much. Not not necessarily on a personal level like we should talk to them to see if we can help them, but in terms of getting their viewpoints on the world, I think that we should just, you know, scrap that idea. It, to me it's almost like there should be some fundamental uh, truth that we can all agree on in terms of uh, human being, every human being is equal. And if that's the fundamental truth, then we don't need to be rehashing uh, white supremacist ideals. And to me, that's essentially off the table, right, for any type of conversation. If you're going to rehash the topic of why the white race is more superior, I think that's a automatic no. Because in my mind, that's almost as equal as saying, oh, uh, the world is flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should automatically be discounted. Your the conversation stops immediately because that is not grounded in reality. Yeah. So there, there needs to be a common sense of what is reality. And if we can't have that conversation, then I, I don't think uh, that person that's not grounded in reality has really has a voice in the conversation or should uh, basically don't ha- uh, should not have a voice in that conversation. That's talking about universal norms, which of which there are very few in society across different cultures and different societies. But I think you are onto something that the viewpoint that one race itself, a conflicted term could be genetically superior to another is so antiquated and on the face value of it false that it can be dismissed out of hand and that the function of the idea often serves other probably economic or cultural preservation purposes rather than any kind of truth value within it. And by that I mean, if you are willing to endorse a myth of white supremacy, then it enables you to justify things like school segregation or job segregation, you know, differential funding to different communities. It's a foundation you can build on to do other non-constructive things within a society. In terms of, you know, bringing the conversation back to mobilization factors, I found that uh, there is a, a strong correlation between economic factors like unemployment, farm closure, manufacturing job loss, things like that seem to be a strong driving force to getting far-right groups up and out of their seats and mobilized. Anything that they can construe in as an attack by a foreign force foreign to you know the white core that they see themselves as that's how they they rally into protest form because someone is looking for another person another group to essentially blame right for yeah their current situation exactly it's kind of a, a scapegoating of a way i guess you know, things are, are going bad, you're you're facing unemployment and poverty, so you're looking for, for someone who's to blame, and disadvantaged groups in society have always been a, a far easier target than, say, taking it in a, a class direction and saying it's the wealthy who are, 
who are oppressing me and causing my my dire economic circumstance. That, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be on the table for you know alt right groups. It's always always the foreign body of disadvantaged minorities who they they problematize. Mm-hmm. I'll go back to the Southern Poverty Law Center's um, uh, publications, but they had published kind of some recommendations in terms of how to combat uh, white nationalism. And uh, one of their key uh, key recommendations was around dismantling white nationalism through anti-racist education. That's kind of one piece, trying to delegitimize um, uh, these white nationalist views. The other piece is protecting voters' rights and civic engagement. So uh, we, we all know voter suppression occurs, mm-hmm. and and especially in the U.S. where you have gerrymandering. So protecting voters' rights, ensuring that uh, people of color have the ability to vote and have their voices heard in a democratic process. Uh, the third recommendation is around decriminalizing and also de-incarcerating Black and people of color as well, just uh, because of past injustices and w- in which uh, people of color were more prone to not only be arrested but also face longer sentences mm-hmm. uh, compared to their white counterparts, uh, and then the the other main recommendation, recommendation uh, which you touched on, was around eradicating poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, uh, by limiting poverty, you're going to start creating economic uh, opportunities for people in general, whether you're white or someone of color. And it it creates less of an incentive for these groups to rise up uh, once they are given kind of economic opportunities. Yeah, you're removing the friction that would come from, you know, perceived competition over limited good jobs. Yeah, I ended up taking a bit more of a a closer look at, at uh, sort of what leads to this white supremacist view. So not looking at the group as a whole, but looking at more of the individual. And, and like you're saying, a lot of it does have to do with um, with a lot of this poverty. So funny enough, I was uh, on the internet a few days ago and I saw this video that CNN posted. It was uh, how a South Carolina mom left QAnon behind. And I, I was like, well, I have to watch this because I have to know, I have to know how to get people out of QAnon. <laughs> um, but she talked a lot about how COVID nineteen really affected her. She ended up losing her job, um, and when she lost her job, she kind of went down this rabbit hole in the internet. And so this level of poverty kind of led to this desperation in her and uh, going down this this rabbit hole, um, you know, she talked about different things like consuming Internet and media slash news. So like she consumed a lot of the Internet news that was being sent to her by friends or other people in these forums uh, versus like any actual news. She said she didn't even follow the news. So. And and then you get into this idea that that algorithm in Facebook and Twitter and whatever kind of gives you, gets that echo chamber, like you talked about. Um, but it all really started with this idea of her falling into um, poverty. Um, <clears throat> and I originally started my research thinking 
you know, white supremacists are monsters. Why would we ever talk to them? But like, I I understand that that's a very extreme reaction. I also saw it. I also saw the interview and it was, it really seemed like, I mean, she's not the type of person who is going to actively kind of be informed, right? She's not going to actively kind of seek out uh, information for herself. I I think one of her comments in that interview was, oh, I, I just, people just tell me stuff and then I just accept it or I kind of, uh, uh, I, I need people to kind of tell me <laughs> what to do or what to think. And uh, she's just not the type of person who's actively engaged. And as you mentioned, like she doesn't watch the news, right? She doesn't actively kind of seek out the news. Yeah. Not yeah. seeking out credible peer reviewed sources by the sounds of it. Yeah. Which, which is fine. I mean, some people maybe they just don't want to engage in uh, the news, but I, I think that leaves the opportunity for someone to influence her and that someone mm-hmm. may have gotten their information from uh, from fake news <laughs> and <laughs> then kind of disseminate it uh, over to her. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so, so talking about like that information disseminating through the internet, I watched a video because I feel like I went, I went just even like a little bit deeper on this because I, I saw that interview and I thought the same thing of like, you know, she's just, she's not somebody who would get her information from a reliable source. And then you think like, are these people who buy into these conspiracies? I mean, they're obviously not getting their information from reliable sources. So I watched this TED talk uh, called Why I Talk to White Supremacists. And it was from December of 2019 uh, by a woman named uh, Vidya Ramalingam. Sorry if I've pronounced that name incorrectly, but uh, she is an Indian woman and she goes to these white supremacist rallies uh, and talks to the white supremacists to figure out why they think what they think. And it was really interesting because towards the end of the video, she talked about how um, what she did was she partnered with Google to use um, this algorithm that white supremacists would be using um, to offer them sort of counter content. Um, And so she actually found that white supremacists were um, disproportionately likely to engage with social supports. um, So like offers of counseling and self-help content um, due to their feelings of anxiety and hopelessness, which really are driving uh, people to turn towards white supremacy and that white supremacists, uh, so they're 48 percent uh, more likely than the general public to engage with that content. And then if they were looking at uh, looking to join a neo-Nazi movement, they were 115 percent more likely to engage with the content. Um, so the key is really reaching out to them and finding a way to get them this information, um, and to prevent them from being in this echo chamber, um, once they have sort of succumbed to either poverty or, uh, these feelings of anxiety and hopelessness, because that's what white supremacists prey on. They, they build this group. It's really interesting, um, I did limited research on on white supremacists as a history because I was looking at the person, but like seeing how they recruit people through bringing it's almost like a cult. They they bring them in and offer them this sense of community and this mm-hmm. sense of 
brotherhood that they're not really getting outside of uh, outside in their real life. Like they've been bullied or, you know, uh, cast aside from society. Do you think that uh, based on what you just said, that the typical person who, you know, joins white supremacist group is more likely to be an isolated loner type or more likely to be a person who's already nested in a particular social group that, you know, guides them into that particular social sphere? I think it's both. Um, Because looking at that CNN interview, she talked about how uh, she started reaching out to her friends on Facebook who were Trump supporters and also they also had these QAnon beliefs and then she would get sent all of this information from them. So she was in a friend group that, that sort of um, promoted this information um, and that made her echo chamber. But I also think she then, she started looking for it in the first place because, um, because of her situation and because of her feelings of, um, you know, trying to cope with, job loss and things like that. So I think it's both. I think maybe these people could be loners, but but oftentimes they get there because, you know, they were groomed to be there um, through friend groups and, and things like that. It, it's how cults form. It's, yeah, very per- pervasive, even with people who aren't just, I mean, we want to think of these white supremacists as these loners, these outside of society people. Yeah. Yeah. But they're like they're people like your neighbors and yeah. When you look at um, the various uh, Trump rallies, um, I mean, people find community, right? Once mm-hmm. once they have um, uh, found these well, white supremacist groups and individuals that kind of think the same way, I mean, they've essentially found a community where. Um, uh, they feel like they were previously an outsider, but now they have a uh, a group of people that are like minded, and they have an another group that they can target and and kind of uh, uh, continue to spread hate against. Yeah, I found myself really empathizing um, <clears throat> with with these people who fall into this hole, um, and there are groups out there who are trying to help. Uh, individuals get out of their situation and because it's it's sort of like leaving a cult you you can't do it on your own you need you need some help to get out of the cult or um you know out of an abusive relationship how did she get out of it how did who get out of it oh the uh, QAnon girl um I think I think everything kind of crumbled in on her because QAnon is about all of those conspiracy theories. Um, so she talked about how she was crying when um, Biden at Biden's inauguration because she thought that the screen would go blank and that the police would come in and arrest Biden. And uh, she was worried and wanted to take her kids out of school. So she called her mother I think it was and I think her mother talked her down and then and then seeing the events unfold in a way that was counter to what she had learned I think that kind of pulled her out of it and I think that pulled a lot of people out of QAnon in the last you know the last few weeks so it's different a little bit than than white supremacy where you're starting to build this belief system 
but even like, and we like to think of them as like dumb people, right? Like, how could you believe that the white race is is more superior than other races? There's so much science against this, but they come Just up like with their earth. own. Yeah, but they come up with their own counter science. Like I read somewhere um, that how they that they started um, posting all of this genetic testing about how they were purely white or whatever. Some places you have to post that in order to be part of the forum or something anyway. And how these people sometimes had Native American ancestry in their background. And so instead of saying, I, uh, I'm not pure white, um, I have Native American ancestry, they said instead um, that um, the test showed that because Native Americans uh, that were used as the reference point for the test had picked up Euro- uh, European DNA along the way, and that's why uh, their test correlated. So it's not like they're stupid. They're coming up with these things that it, it, if you had no other reference point, then, then you might believe. Yeah, just a little bit of mental gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah, but when we think, I think you mentioned like white supremacy, there is an element of power as well in terms of um, uh, kind of their the existing power structures are being threatened. Um, so it's almost like, you know, certain individuals are trying to create justification to maintain that uh, power as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it's a probably a pretty powerful incentive uh, if you're, uh, feeling threatened, and I know you mentioned uh, previously, you know, about like white privilege. Uh, it, it's th- this privilege, this uh, this power in society, uh, this and the loss of that power in society is a real threat for certain people. And um, I, I think that's why you see some of these irrational justifications to kind of rationalize why why the white race might be more superior or and, and i can maybe you know uh, go through some other examples later in terms of uh, maybe not specifically white supremacy but uh how uh these white supremacist ideals have kind of infiltrated society uh to try to squash some of these converse, difficult conversations to have uh when it comes to like white supremacy and white privilege i think it's interesting it just made me think you know Often their their rhetoric is able to fold in other more legitimate ideas to to help you know keep their ship on on course. Like they'll fold in free speech and you know suppression of their own voice when they're when they're trying to defend their right to get hate speech out there. Or you guys reminded me of the uh, remember the the podcast we did about the statues being torn down, like the the removal of the statue of Robert E. Lee that sparked the the Charlottesville, Virginia, Unite the Right riot. You know, they're using a defense of history, a history that they happen to be proud of, as as validation for their particular point of view. So they they take elements that do seem like something you would want to stand for, defending history, defending free speech, and they make that a part of their platform to ultimately promote white supremacist ideas. Yeah. So maybe to touch on uh, what I, I kind of just teased uh, earlier in terms of um, uh, kind of a link between uh, white supremacy and uh, white privilege, people may not kind of overtly talk about white supremacy, but um, a lot of the elements uh, around like white privilege and some of the defenses that come up it is because 
you know, power structures are changing and people are feeling threatened. So some of the defenses uh, people might have would be, you know, uh, I I have suffered too, and kind of trying to link, uh, or I'm sure some of you have heard uh, maybe some people claiming, well, I can't be racist or white supremacist because I know people of color. Mm-hmm. I have black friends and I, I can't be, you know, racist because I've, uh, black friends or trying to shut down kind of conversations about how, oh, it's the tone of the conversation. I'm feeling attacked. So there, there, there's kind of these um, uh, claims being made to try to shut the conversation down. And it, it, it for me, at least, it feels it's quite tightly linked in terms of uh, uh, what white supremacist ideals, where it's uh, it is about kind of power structures and uh the view that the white race the white uh culture is more superior and and people are trying to hold on to uh some of these powers mm-hmm. well i think that a lot of people have gotten so used to having these privileges um whether it is in the workplace or societally or whatever um we have oppressed uh minorities, um, marginalized people in the process to get where we are. And so a lot of these white people benefit from this history of whiteness. And so by saying, even when you think about like affirmative action, how you're saying like, we want to allow everyone to have, um, equal opportunity and things like that. And they're thinking, oh, that's going to take jobs away from, white people and aren't we just as qualified and uh things like that and so it's like they're they they feel like these things are being taken away from them when really it's sort of like white people got a bigger piece of the pie for so long that now when we we're baking a new pie we want to actually give everyone equal pieces of that pie um so that we can all have pie um and and they're saying, no, but I got this really big piece last time. I want another big piece. Why can't I have that good big piece? Worked up quite an appetite. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't I earn this? I walked here. I don't know. <laughs> but the thing is, it's not a finite amount, right? I mean, yeah. you can grow the size of the pie even bigger. Yeah. <laughs> like when you think about the economy, when you think about, you know, uh, jobs, it's not a finite resource that you got to like split it up to you know certain individuals i mean these are things that can be infinite and you could kind of grow the size of the pie i think they see it as finite though because they look at it like okay this one job that i'm applying to um now they have to hire somebody else because i'm white um So I think they see it as this finite thing of this one job or, you know, this one thing where, whereas they don't really see how infinite uh, it can be. So I I want to go through um, this Forbes article where it talked about kind of four myths of uh, white supremacy. And I'm wondering what you guys kind of think of it. Uh, The first one here is uh, uh, the myth is it's always intentional. So, but in reality, when you think about, uh, white supremacy. Uh, there are structures uh, like in the workplace, for example, where um, mm. uh, kind of, uh, for example, a black person with dreadlocks uh, might be deemed as unprofessional, even though that's 
not really the case. It's, it's uh, you know, this uh, white ideal of what the right, you know, professional look is gets applied to uh, different races. And then another one, another myth is uh, it's only white people that uh, are kind of uh, promoting kind of white supremacy. I think that one's an interesting one because mm-hmm. when we think about um, I'm sure if we look through right-wing media, <laughs> there's probably uh, certain people of color that continue to uh, push uh, some of these uh, white supremacist ideals as well. Um, and, and maybe from a cultural standpoint, there's also, um, in certain cultures, this premise of dark skin being bad or being undesirable uh, that's being uh, utilized. and and it, it goes back to you know past history of uh, why white the white race or the white skin is more desirable, um, and kind of drives this ideology that kind of whiteness equals um, more uh, more beautiful or more more accepted in society. And the other one is uh, another myth is it's not common, but in reality we know that it's. Uh, a, pretty common as least in the last four years where we see significantly more um, overt kind of white supremacist ideals and groups coming up. Um, And it's not bound by any age as well, um, because it's, I don't think we can, at least for me, I don't think I can say it's kind of the older, the older generation, because you kind of see young people uh, participating in these groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other myth is it disappears with new leadership. And this was published uh, trying to talk about the fact that, for example, just because uh, Obama went into the into power for eight years, it didn't eliminate racism. It didn't eliminate, you know, white supremacy. It it was still there, and uh, it actually grew, as we talked about uh, when Donald Trump came into power. Well, I think we we didn't see it for so long because it was underground, like. Um, you know, when we saw the downfall of the Ku Klux Klan, people kind of took their racism, white supremacy, and kind of went underground into their little communities. And then with the internet, with the creation of the internet and how that's exploded and social media and things, it's just allowed people to, to be more open about their white supremacy. Uh, and with Trump, Trump sort of, I feel, exploded all of that as well. Yeah. And I think it's also that discoverability as well, right? Once people discovered, oh, some people think uh, white culture is or white supremacy is uh, is a thing and it, it resonates with me. And I have ills against um, society, uh, corporations, etc. But I will apply my my blame on other races. Mm-hmm. Just to comment on a couple of the, the myths, I found the, the intentional versus unintentional one pretty interesting. That uh, I do think it's very easy for people to mischaracterize their, their overall white supremacist or you know, at least racist thoughts and feelings as something that isn't white supremacy. They, they will say, you know, the... The black man who comes into the the workplace with dreadlocks, he's being unprofessional. You know, they apply a, a professionalism filter to it, 
which is based on this this stereotype that exists of the the ideal white man in the business suit with the the clean cut look but it goes it taps into uh business and professionalism as opposed to racism which is what it actually is the other thing i find it super interesting that uh you said other races are involved in in white supremacist rhetoric and i i'm super curious about which groups those are or whether it's just isolated individuals who who happen to have benefited in spite of the system that is against them yeah i don't know if there's like specific groups but i, I think it's maybe more individualistic mm-hmm. um i think there are there are certain ideals that kind of get perpetuated uh i know at least um coming from an asian background uh, there there's always this pressure in like southeast asia on people uh having fair skin and trying and um even going so far as like bleaching their skin as well which is very very odd mm-hmm. uh, why someone is so intent on trying to lighten their skin color uh, it, but it, it just kind of goes it kind of just reflects to me kind of these uh beauty standards that are uh, placed in society where uh you know when we see uh, media what what is viewed as beautiful it's it, in the past it was always you know a white person and um, you know, people are trying to change that now where it doesn't matter what skin color you have. It, you know, there's beauty in all shades, but I think it was so pervasive in the past that uh, this view of uh, light skin being more beautiful is uh, prevalent in, you know, uh, certain cultures and certain regions. And when you think about it, like the white colonizers came into all of these different countries and places and and really, um, really tried to convince people of their supremacy. So, like, it's created this culture for a long time of, you know, uh, like you're saying, like white skin is is um, is better and things like that because that's what us white coloners colonizers taught other races and really indoctrinated them to a point where it's a part of our culture. I always find it very interesting looking at beauty ads and things like that. And and I analyze them in like my English classes and things like that. And we look at, you know, all of those skincare product lines, they always feature white women. It's never women of color because that's sort of what, you know, we've been taught because that's, it's it's a part of our cultural history. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why, you know, for me, one of the takeaways as well, uh, other than obviously denouncing white supremacy and kind of creating opportunities f- uh, for people to vote and eradicating poverty, uh, I think another piece is also creating more space for people of color to be more visible and uh, to ensure there are opportunities for people of color. So uh, I, I think there's also kind of a pro- proactive approach that we as you know normal individuals can take to uh, ensure that we check our own kind of biases uh, and, I, and to make sure we create space for other people to 
participate in society and participate in you know the benefits that we have uh, benefit f- benefited from for so long. I'm kind of hung up on this uh, when you said you know other racial groups getting involved in white supremacy. I I didn't expect that it would be so physical and literal in terms of wanting to appear white. I I read that as you know they wanted to be part of the the institutional structures that tends to privilege white people, but which they may have also somehow benefited within. But it made me think of, um, there's a novel that I, I'm reading for a course I'm taking right now called Passing by Nella Larson. And it takes that really physical standpoint too, in that it uh, it's about black women who happen to have a, a lighter complexion attempting to pass themselves off as white persons as opposed to African-American persons. And so I, I'm still mm-hmm. trying to wrap my head around whether, whether that's the angle that this Forbes article was, was tackling, whether they're trying to actually claim that they are a part of white supremacy physically or whether they just are benefiting socially within the institutions and structures that exist. Uh, I, I think there's a definitely an element of trying to um, blend in and uh, benefit from kind of these uh, structures that are in place already. Again, I like likely to um, promote the view of or, or tr- to try to create opportunities for themselves uh, so that they aren't viewed as a a dark-skinned person who may be discriminated against, mm-hmm. um, who may, you know, get looks when they walk into a store uh, if they're carrying a backpack, for example. And the, there's so many uh, prejudices that have uh, infiltrated our society in the past that they're trying to get away from. Yeah, it's really interesting trying to. So I mean I don't blame them for wanting that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean if the society is uh puts uh these preconceived notions into other people that, you know, dark skin equals uh, all these negative traits. Yeah, they're going to want to they want to find a way to not be associated with that. They've recognized where the positive associations are, where, you know, the power imbalance lies and they want to be part of you know, the more powerful group as opposed to the more socially constructive approach of being to tear down these structures and ensure that there's a level playing field for everybody so that nobody has to, you know, try to pretend their stripes aren't what they are just so that they can be part of the more dominant hegemonic group. So how else are we going to solve this? <laughs> Do you have anything else? I, I'm all for the the suppression on the internet that is happening with Facebook and what were the other ones you mentioned, Twitter, Instagram, things like that, taking down hate group, uh, destroying their ability to to organize online. I think that's been a super productive approach. Uh, Yeah. And reaching out to people. Yes. Reaching out to people and helping with the poverty situation raising everybody's standard of living to a point where they don't feel like they're in constant competition and need to to seek out a scapegoat an easy one of which so, is uh, you do, you guys don't have to identify anyone but do you, you in your friends group or like you know facebook group have people that 
maybe swing a little bit too close <laughs> to white supremacy? Ah, yeah. You mean do I keep some some token? I would say yeah. I'm gonna say token, token alt right people on my Facebook and such. I have one or two, <laughs> yes, <laughs> just to see what they're saying. I have potentially a family member that, uh, since moving to the states, has become a little more radicalized. Um, I don't think that they know how. Um, how much they... Do you think you would reach think, out to them? I've tried. I don't, I don't see. I, I don't know. I don't think I'm the right person to be approaching them. <laughs> I get a little mad a little too easily. And, the, and it's really hard to penetrate their science and their point of views because they have come up with these alternate point of views that they believe are real. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a licensed psychologist and I can't, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, I know like reaching out uh, sounds great, but it's, I, I personally, myself, I'm going to have struggles because of my patient, my lack of patience <laughs> uh, when it comes to, you know, talking about this. So uh, the reaching out piece is going to be something that I would need to work on <laughs> personally. I can't really think of how I would, convince someone who's already nested in that belief system to to at least experiment with or or entertain alternative theories about you know what maybe it's maybe it's not the immigrants who are stealing all your jobs maybe it's the bears instead and i (laughs) i'm not sure how to uh how to crack that nut and and get them to entertain perspectives that they haven't been reinforced in and embedded in but I think it's worth trying, and someone needs to figure this out. We shouldn't stop trying just because we've failed so many times in the past. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the worst thing would be to to write off a, a segment of the population and say they're not worth saving anymore. It'd be very hypocritical, and it would drive would them further into their belief system as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's always got to be the goal to bring people together and, you know, arrive at a better conclusion rather than to say we need to cut our losses and, and forget about them and their kooky ideas. That said, it is going to try a lot of people's patience trying to, to win them back. <laughs> so we'll do our best. So it's all we can do as humans. It's all we can do. Mm-hmm. OK, well, I think that's it. Sounds good to me. I don't want to talk about white supremacy anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's tricky because it's like, uh, you don't want to like give too much credit to their ideas. You want to always get away from them and forget about them. (laughs) I want to push them back into the back dark recesses of my mind. (laughs) Yeah. So let's, let's conclude with, you know, we'll classify white supremacy as crazy and then (laughs) and then let's move on to another topic next week so yeah i am excited to move on to something else maybe something (laughs) lighter i don't know we can't promise that (laughs) yeah no guarantees let's yeah cross our fingers (laughs) that the world doesn't continue to burn down (laughs) but it gives us something hopeful and inspiring that we can uh draw on and have a conversation about that's my hope yeah 
Okay, so thanks everyone for listening to this episode, and we will check you guys out next time. See you next time. Till next time.